from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. People describe it as feeling like a a cold or a touch of the flu. Does that give us some hope that maybe we're seeing a deluge, but that in a couple weeks things could look a whole lot better? That's not the way I would look at this. So even when you say mild for individuals, when you compare individual to individual, we have seen so much higher numbers, record numbers nationally and certainly within the city of St. Louis and the region, that the relative proportion of hospitalizations and associated deaths is still too high for us to characterize this as mild by any means. I'm Sarah Fenske. As COVID cases continue to increase across the metro, test positivity rates have reached alarming highs. More than 1,000 people are now hospitalized with COVID. BJC Healthcare has canceled elective procedures. Other local systems may follow. But two years into the pandemic, some people are now downright defiant about public health measures. In Jefferson City, Governor Mike Parson has declared an end to Missouri's state of emergency. And Attorney General Eric Schmidt has filed suit against public health mandates just about as quickly as local governments implement them. It makes for a very difficult landscape for public health professionals. And joining us today to explain how she's dealing with all this and what it will take for St. Louis to get out of it is Dr. Mati Shatwayo Davis. She is the director of the St. Louis Department of Health. Dr. Mati, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So give us the latest. How concerning are these numbers of COVID cases to you at this point? Oh, so unfortunately, I would characterize where we are as being in the midst of an alarming public health crisis. The current surge in COVID-19 cases is presenting record numbers of cases and the actual volume threatens to overwhelm our hospitals. I can give you just a few numbers for people to really get the the crux of where we are. So let's start with uh, a COVID-19 seven-day average snapshot for the city. And this is data that uh, I'll be reporting from um, December 26th. Uh, through uh, uh, January 1st. And in that time, there were 390 new confirmed cases. Really alarming when you think the goal is for 35 or fewer cases. Mm. We had 139 new hospital admissions. Again, the goal is 40 or fewer admissions. 717 total hospitalizations. The goal here being 350 or smaller. And then the case positivity rate, which everybody kind of knows is the gold standard and the, the WHO has outlined a goal of 5% or lower, is currently at 33% and could be higher because it's, it's increasing so rapidly. You know, all of this in the context of a total of 652 COVID-19 associated deaths in the city of St. Louis is truly alarming to me. So those are some really alarming numbers. And yet we keep hearing reports that so many people who seem to have this Omicron variant have few, if any, symptoms. People describe it as feeling like a a cold or a touch of the flu. Does that give us some hope that maybe we're seeing a deluge, but that in a couple weeks things could look a whole lot better? That's not the way I would look at this, right? So another way that I've been seeing people characterize this is Omicron is mild. And what I would challenge people to, to, to reconsider is that mild for a, you know a f- cases of individual people is very different from the overall public health and system level impact 
right? So even when you say mild for individuals, when you compare individual to individual, we have seen so much higher numbers, record numbers nationally and certainly within the city of St. Louis and the region that the relative proportion of hospitalizations and associated deaths is still too high for us to characterize this as mild by any means. So the numbers are just so high that even though, sure, there is, you know, a lot of people experience mild, the, the number of, of hospitalizations, severe illness and death driven up by those very high numbers mean our hospitals are overwhelmed, aren't able to take care of other, uh, of other people. So the overall impact is um, severe, not mild by any means. So this impact is a big focus for you. I understand you're doing some things uh, to try to mitigate this really tough situation we're in right now. What's happening on that front from your office? So um, basically, I have been meeting with local national uh, leaders um, across disciplines to really focus in on what should be the priorities right now to flatten the curve. And so we're doing a few things here. One thing we do know is that masking, especially at a population level, has is, is impactful. And so the mask mandate in the city of St. Louis is still in effect and is still valid. And we would definitely recommend that people continue to mask up. What our department has also done, and you will see on our website um, by the end of day today, is masking guidance for folks who are purchasing masks. You know, what is the order of priority or, or of, of efficacy um, of masks? And how do you know if you're buying a mask or utilizing a mask that's good? And so we, we're, we're putting that guidance up. The next thing is I am... Um, we know that testing has become really difficult to access. And so one of the things I focused on in the last two weeks is ramping up testing availability within the city of St. Louis. So starting next week, we will be making available a 1,000 to 2,000 new tests, um, a test, PCR tests available in multiple sites in the city of St. Louis. Links for registration will be up by end of day Friday, so end of day tomorrow. And for me, this is something that I'm incredibly proud of because we know that people need access to PCR tests to really be able to know whether they have they have COVID-19 and then be able to do the appropriate, the appropriate um, isolation at that point. Um, we Unfortunately, there is a national shortage of antigen tests, and I believe that I'll be able to announce um, some initiatives that the city will, is working on right now to increase our supply of antigen tests for um, critical workers first and then the general public as well. I'm trying to do the same for masking. So, you know, there's a lot there that I'm trying to do to really address the needs of our citizens right now. The other thing I've been doing is just meeting with leadership, really working closely with them. Our schools are, you know, really struggling here. So we're working with them. I've been taking multiple meetings a week just to really see how we can support them. I met with the state to make sure that they actually had access to antigen tests. So um, the schools do have that access. Um, and then the testing, that ramping up of testing, 1,000 to 2,000 tests per day starting next week, will really help our hospital systems because what hospital leaders have told me is that people are now coming to emergency rooms for testing, and that really gets in the way of them being able to take care of, of really sick people. So these are big initiatives that we are taking. One of the other things that's going out tomorrow is um, we'll be sending um, 
information by way of, of email to businesses, really encouraging them to work with their employee for, for home options for um, uh, working from home wherever possible, and for them to really take the lead in also trying to, to purchase antigen tests as supply um, increases to provide to their star staff and, and incorporate into their operational protocols with this new guidance that um, we have updated around isolation and quarantine today for the city of St. Louis. So really trying to work with businesses for best practices, giving them that masking guidance and, and, and also giving them ventilation guidelines to help them to really keep businesses safe. So that's some of what we're doing here. That's a, that's a lot you've got going, and I'm glad to hear it. It's mm -hmm. good to see urgency going towards this crisis. You mentioned some changes in isolation and quarantine guidance. I imagine a lot of our listeners are, are going to be interested in what that will mean for them. Uh, if you could give us the, the shorthand version, what are the new rules? Yeah, let's talk about that. So, you know, most people know that the CDC updated their isolation and quarantine guidelines last week. I really took time with this because what was a little bit different about how they did this is usually public health officials have access to the data to support this right up front, and we did not have to have that until late yesterday. So um, we have updated our isolation and quarantine guidelines, and I made those decisions um, really in response to what I saw, but also trying to be responsible that I haven't had time um, you, you know, to, to review that data. And so th those, you know, the changes may happen and honestly, as quickly as the variants and the, the cases are evolving, that may happen. But really what we have updated is that the period of isolation for a person with a positive COVID-19 test may be as short as five days, reflecting the CDC's observation that this is the most contagious time during infection. Um, but that that hinges on a few things that you will see in the guidance and that will be available on our website that include if you have availability to a test, an antigen test, how to utilize that. If you don't, how we will support you and what the criteria are for you to be able to end quarantine. So the quarantine period is going to be anywhere from five to 10 days based on our new guidelines. The same is true for the period of quarantine for a close contact, maybe a short um as no days with a mask or five days with a negative PCR test or two negative antigen tests taken 24 hours apart. Again, all hinging on access. So we have really made guidance that allows people to walk through what they are to do if they don't have that critical supply um, or critical access to testing um, that is unfortunately a national issue at this point. So it sounds like you're saying now that you've gotten a chance to really dig into what the CDC was recommending and able to look at the data that, that underpinned their decision, you feel good about that. That's the direction St. Louis is going at this point. So, so let me be clear and let me be sorry if I wasn't. I've had to, to, to create guidance before having access to the data. So I did what I believed based on pre-existing data, what is the safest. And now that we've been provided that data, which came late yesterday, we'll also be reviewing that. And if changes need to be made, they will. Okay. So the data, the, the guidelines that are, are in effect starting today really are taking into consideration what the CDC, said, CDC gave us without access to that data last week, as well as, you know, my expertise and the expertise of the health department um, around infectious diseases and public health in consultation with local uh, public health leaders and national public health leaders. Um, this is a difficult time we're in. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep it straight, right? Um, these are unprecedented times, unprecedented numbers, two highly transmissible variants. And the CDC giving guidance that is the 
biggest and most starkest change that we've seen um, from previous guidance. So for me, the goal is to say, listen, I believe that you should have an antigen test in hand to test out of, 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 of isolation at day five. But I know practically as a leader that not everyone is gonna have that. So I have guidelines that will address what to do in these different scenarios. We do need to take a quick break here, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking to Dr. Mati Chatoyo-Davis, the director of the St. Louis Department of Health. Just an unprecedented wave of COVID cases filling the city right now. Dr. Mati, schools have been such a big issue for so many people, for so many parents. Uh, Chicago shut down in-person learning yesterday. Are you worried that could be coming uh, for the St. Louis public schools as well? You know, unfortunately, in my conversations with school leadership just this week, that's already happening here in the region um, with some schools that just don't have the capacity and who have seen alarming surges in cases. So my department is working very closely with school leaders to make sure that they have the guidance for support. You know, they, they have guidance from us around how to handle this, but they are also working closely with both their national and state leaders in making these decisions. This is absolutely devastating. We know that we want to keep schools open, but we only want to do so in a way that's safest for both children and staff. Um, and so again, uh, that's why we need an all hands on deck approach from the public in trying to flatten the curve so that we can do that. So we got a question on Twitter. Uh, Katie writes, does Dr. Shatwayo Davis have any guidance on the timing of COVID booster shots for folks who are fully vaxxed but recently infected? Is there a waiting period post-infection? Does it matter if the COVID case was asymptomatic? Um, can you repeat that question again? Sure. So uh, Katie wonders if you have guidance on the timing of COVID booster shots for somebody who's fully vaccinated but did recently get infected. Should there be a waiting period after that infection, even if the COVID case was asymptomatic? Yeah, we're not recommending any change to the current CDC the guidelines around the timing of boosters. And so there should not be any delays or any thoughts and delays around the current guidance by the CDC. Okay. I'm going to go to the phone lines here. Jeannie is calling from St. Louis. Uh, Jeannie, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. Um, yes, I'm a preschool director in the city of St. Louis. And my question is, uh, what is the St. Louis City's guidance on children who cannot be vaccinated but uh, test positive for COVID and or are exposed to COVID, what are the city's guidelines regarding uh, quarantine and or isolation? Jeannie, thank you for that question and thank you for your work as a preschool director. That means a lot to all of us who are parents. Dr. Mahdi. 
Jeannie, thanks so much for calling in. And honestly, thank you for your leadership and your service here. So the guideline that will be posted at the end of day today will really help to work through that. You'll also be getting, you know, unfortunately, there's so many um, new daycare centers that I, I'm not sure that we have a comprehensive list, but there are communications going out to really answer that question directly. So please be on the lookout for those. But basically, for children that cannot vaccinate, um, it, let me let me actually back up. Basically, what we have put together is a quarantine and isolation period for as short as five days um, with a negative PCR test um, or as long as 10 days with a positive one. Um, but also in, in the absence of an antigen test, there is guidance. So again, it's difficult, you know, to read a whole policy on the air, Jeannie, sure. but what I will tell you is that guidance will be on the website, will address children who cannot mask, it will address um, people who are not vaccinated versus uh, who are vaccinated. That varies from isolation uh, guidance um, to quarantine guidance. So there is a differentiation for vaccinated um, and boosted within a certain time period versus not for quarantine, but that does not exist for isolation. And again, we've been we've made it very clear what you need to do if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, symptomatic or or asymptomatic, access to an antigen test or not. Um, and whether you can wear a mask correctly or not, which really relates to your population. Uh, so Jeannie, please be look on the lookout for that. Um, I, those communications are going out this afternoon and the guidelines will be um, online. If you do have problems um, with those or additional questions, please don't hesitate to email us on the email address on our website. Um, and my bureau chief in, in charge of this is monitoring those email communications and can get, that, get them to me directly. I want to thank Jeannie for that question. I know so many people just trying to stay up with the latest, do the right thing. Uh, Dr. Mati, it's interesting. We had booked you to come on this show even before this huge surge. And part of what we were talking about at that time is you were proactively talking about bigger picture stuff, not just responding to crisis. And I wonder if you could just speak briefly to that, some of these, these efforts where you're trying to tackle some of these underlying problems in addition to now what's become a much more urgent situation. Yeah, you know, I came, I, I, you know, I only took over this this role on October 18th. And, you know, we were almost two years into the pandemic. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't have the luxury of only being able to address COVID. Being almost two years in, we know that non-COVID priorities had taken a back seat to the detriment of the public. And that's the nature of pandemics. So I have had to address in parallel um, COVID and non-COVID priorities. Um, and the non-COVID priorities that were really critical and, and continue to be by way of priorities are um, violence prevention, uh, behavioral health, and chronic illness. But you know what's interesting is you come in and you have visions of we're gonna um, address our missions, our goals, strategic planning, implementation and dissemination strategies. And then you talk to your staff, which is where you should always start. Yeah. And what I quickly learned is that I inherited a health department that two years in had was burnt out as are most health departments across the country, had critical shortages in staff. We're talking, I had one person who was able to attend to all of animal control for the city. Oh my we goodness. Had, uh, we were down to less than five contact tracers for the entire city. You know, these are critical shortages that I had to address imminently. This also in the climate where we know that there are, um, there are uh, uh, pay wage 
um, inequities for city employees, for county employees, for public health employees that need to be addressed and have needed to be addressed for years now. Um, this and, and, and my staff echoed that. They talked about being tired, being burnt out, and needing to have value-based initiatives. So as a leader, before you can even look externally, you really have to do the job of looking internally and before making any decision, committing to anything, being thoughtful about how will it address your staff who are already doing the job of three to five people and are severely burnt out. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like such a challenge and yet so critical to address. Have you been able to find in these last couple months, even again, as, as COVID rages, um, have you been able to get some new hires in there, deal with some of those staffing issues, and, and frankly, maybe get some pay raises for people who I'm sure urgently deserve it? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, since I've started in the position, we've worked really hard to fill critical positions. But I've also had to, in parallel, because of how long that can take, um, really lean into partnerships and, and come up with innovative, collaborative ways that we can work together. One of the things I did was reach out on my first day to, well, even before my first day, uh, to the county and say, listen, will you join me in, in committing to a monthly meeting between our leadership and our boards of health so that we can keep each other updated, align where we can, and even where we can't align, find ways to support each other and collaborate. That has been incredible. The county has been really great partners to this point, but I've also really advocated um, to the mayor's office and throughout the city um, government for um, you know, equitable pay for our, our city employees, which is something that Mayor Jones really, really cares deeply about, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, looking again to our partners. And and because of that, we have really made great strides in filling positions, but in or and but in being able to do such amazing initiatives as increasing testing next week for the city um, and other critical initiatives during that time. Our pediatric rollout being really successful by leaning into those partnerships. You know, it's interesting. You're- your background, uh, you're an infectious disease specialist, and I understand your focus had been the care of people living with HIV. Do you find that that background comes in handy as you're dealing with challenges that are just all across the map here? Yeah. So, you know, uh, for, for viewers who don't know me or about my background, I'm an infectious diseases physician by training, but I also have a public health degree. So I have an MD and an MPH, and my passion clinically is uh, and background was in the care of people living with HIV but from the public health I had I, I my focus had always been on marginalized communities um, and in COVID really took a, a, a national and international role in addressing uh, vaccine confidence in marginalized communities. And I believe that has really made me the right position for the job for this time. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, those of us who do work in the care of people living with HIV know the parallels of what happened in the mid 80s and what we're facing now, uh, know the similarities and the differences. And that's helped to inform how we address this and how we deal with this from a clinical and public health perspective. But um, my work as an infectious diseases physician is by training, by definition, what we do is respond to epidemics and pandemics. Hmm. You know, since uh, over the last six years, I've responded to uh, Ebola as a first year fellow at Washington University. Um, I was pregnant with my first daughter uh, during Zika. And, um, you know, I remember going to my OB visits and would spend a little bit of time in the beginning helping um, my wonderful OB doctor at the time, uh, you know, uh, do consults for around Zika. And then um, I myself had a pandemic baby last year in May. 
um, in response to this. So it's part of the job in infectious diseases. It's it's a part of our lives. We, by training, have to be the ones that take the lead when epidemics and pandemics arise. Um, and so I believe that my background, both in uh, as, as an infectious diseases doctor and with a public health degree, has been of benefit. As a leader, though, I also try to know where my expertise ends and when I need help and how I do. And, and, and at that point, I lead into my mentors and national and international experts that I've developed relationships with to make sure that we're making the right decisions. Contacts um, at the CDC, contacts at the NIH, contacts at the White House Task Force, um, and then our incredible leaders right here in, in St. Louis at our academic centers and our um, FQHCs and community partners. It's really important to, to, to bring in the folks who are the trusted messengers and have the trusted resources to make these critical changes. So Caroline says that she is very glad you have taken this job. She writes on Twitter, I am so grateful that Dr. Mati decided to accept this challenge. Why? And what keeps her going? She didn't have to. There's a long list of negatives. The pay is not competitive. She has young kids. You get blamed for everything. Public health officials of color especially are receiving death threats. Dr. Mati, she asked a good question there tucked inside that tweet. Why? What made you want to take this job? And what keeps you going? As I'm sure it becomes more and more thankless as this crisis continues to escalate. Wow, what a empathetic and compassionate comment and question. Thank you so much to Caroline. For me, I come from the very communities that are most affected. I am a woman and understand what misogyny looks like um, in and out of the workplace. I am a black woman and understand the real present and historical issues that have been around equity for communities like mine, my communities and communities like mine. And I am an immigrant and understand deeply uh, the challenges and the inequities that there are there. So for me, um, it has always been something that I can relate to, not just on a professional level, but on a personal level. But I really think of what I do as my passion and um, a calling. And so you when this position became available, I'm not going to lie to people. I thought long and hard about it because she's <laughs> right about all those other things, right? Just had a baby, um, uh, not as competitive salary-wise, but you don't do the work I do in infectious diseases and public health if this isn't what you love to do. It is hard. It is. Um, <laughs> it can be enormously, enormously challenging. Um, but I have been fortunate to have a partner in the household, Dr. Jesse Davis, who is my life partner, but who is a physician and who is a champion for um, women, for me, um, and who supports me. And I have two beautifully healthy children. And it's just that, and, and what keeps me going is wanting to keep him, my babies, my communities, and this city, and really our communities around the world safer. We, I have access to education and training and have a level of expertise that others don't. And what I know is a gift that I have is the ability to take really complex issues and make them accessible to the public. So that is what I want to do um, for as long as it makes sense for me to be here. Well, we're glad you're here. And uh, Dr. Mati Shatwayo Davis, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And Dr. Mati is the director of the St. Louis Department of Health.
This episode was produced by Evie Hempel with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.